are um, studying through the Lord's Prayer this morning. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And normally, if, if, you're, if you join us, we would have somebody come up and, and read the Scriptures. But we did that already this morning. We read the Lord's Prayer together. We, are, uh, we talked about last week when we started this series that we are... Um, beginning a little bit of a new rhythm in our gatherings where we're going to recite the prayer together every week. Uh, is, and we talked about how that's something that uh, Jesus told us we should do, uh, that it is a, a prayer that's not just meant to be a suggestion, but is meant to be part of our discipleship to the Lord. So uh, we're going to continue to walk through the prayer this morning. We're going to spend five weeks in total on the Lord's Prayer. And we are in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 859. Uh, And always, if you have any questions as we go through the text, um, feel free to text them to our Q&R number. All right, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us on our own, that you've given us so much. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your church to lead us and guide us through uh, the ups and downs of life. Um, God, so many things are um, just always in flux. I think no matter who we are, there's either just things out in the world or things in our family or things in our job or just things in our own heart are always always seem to be churning and and stirring. and, And Lord, we need you to help calm us, to remind us of your peace, that you are you are sovereign, that you are good, that you're in control of um, directing our lives, that we can rest in you, that we thank you for your love for us, we thank you for your word. God, help us to have a bigger vision of your kingdom this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the best Star Trek episodes begin with transporter accidents. The episode entitled The Next Phase in, in the Star Trek The Next Generation canon involves two crew members who uh, beam up from the surface and something goes wrong. And the whole crew thinks that they've died. Something terrible has happened and they didn't rematerialize and they're gone. But what actually happened is they have materialized but out of phase with the normal universe. They, they exist in the world, but they're slightly out of sync, out of phase. And so they, they can see, they can interact with what's going on, but no one can see them and they can kind of walk through walls and it's kind of this weird thing. And, and the episode ends with this plot that they need to solve and they need to get back into their, their bodies. But the conundrum that they have is that They're part of the same world, but they're not totally lined up with it. And because they're not lined up with it, they they can't interact with it correctly. 
And the whole story of the scripture is built around a similar idea, that reality itself is out of phase. It's been fractured. It's been broken by sin and death. And what once was a unified cosmos, heaven and earth, God's space and our space connected, has been ruptured, and it's not in alignment. And all of the things in God's space, all of the goodness of his world is sort of unreachable to us. And this part of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is meant to ask God to fix that problem. To fix the reality that that our world and God's world are out of alignment, that they don't function correctly together because of the brokenness in our lives and in our world. And so as we look at the prayer this morning and we look at this verse in Matthew 6.10, There are three things that we need to come to understand in this section. And the first one is we need to ask the question, when will the kingdom come? And secondly, we need to ask, what, what will it look like? And thirdly, what is our role in it? When will the kingdom come? What will it look like? And what is our role in it? So the first question, when will the kingdom come, is is an interesting one, because if you've spent any amount of time in the New Testament, the answer's kind of confusing. Because sometimes when we read the scriptures, Jesus seems to be saying that the kingdom of God is happening right now in his presence. In Mark 1.15, we, we read, the time is fulfilled, this is Jesus, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is right here. The kingdom of God is this reality where God's rule is in effect. Wesley Hill says, when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, he is proclaiming that God is asserting his rule in the world in and through Jesus' ministry. And it makes sense that when we see in the gospels, we see Jesus who is the king, the great king, when he comes into a space... He is on the scene, and he brings the kingdom with him. He's the king. Wherever he goes is the kingdom. It's kind of like, I don't don't know if you know this. I learned about this recently. The president travels in a plane called Air Force One, right? But the plane is not called Air Force One. The call sign for the plane is called Air Force One, and the airplane doesn't get called Air, Air Force One unless the president is on it. It has to have another call sign. And if the president, for some reason, got on a different plane, that plane would now be called Air Force One. Air Force One is a designation that travels with the president. And so in the Gospels, it looks like the kingdom is a reality that travels with Jesus. And that when the king came, he brought the kingdom with him. But then we also get the impression in the scriptures that the kingdom isn't here yet. Jesus tells a story in Luke 19. You can turn there if you want. It's a fairly long passage. Starting in verse 11, 
Jesus is talking about his mission, and as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. And he called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. A mina was a unit of currency, unit of money. But his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, he re- the, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him, because you've been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. And so he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? When I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But he said to him, Master, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. So this is a weird story. Uh, Lots of things in here that we don't have time to get into. But a couple things that I want to point out. You see the nobleman at the beginning of the story who is going to go away to receive a kingdom and come back and rule, and he has authority over his servants. He tells his servants, here's my money. I want you to invest it while I'm gone. And he commands them to be fruitful, but he doesn't yet have command over his whole kingdom. There's this whole group of people that refuse to be ruled by him. They refuse his leadership. And Jesus, as we zoom out in the story of the gospel, Jesus is talking about going to the cross. He's going to go, he's going to ascend the throne of his kingship that we see in the cross. He's going to wear the crown of thorns. He's going to uh, rise from the dead and ascend the right hand of the Father. And then he's going to return to claim his kingdom. But in the interim, there are all these people that exist in rebellion to his leadership. He is the king, but not everyone is his subject. In the movie, The Return of the King, the adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn's character is is the rightful king, but he's not acting as the king. He's away in a foreign country, and and he's has a claim to the throne, but he doesn't actually sit on the throne until he shows up, until he returns to it. And so, in the New Testament, we see Jesus talk about the kingdom like it's a reality happening right now, but we also see him talking about the kingdom like it's not here yet, that it's in the future, that it hasn't fully arrived. And this is something that you may have run across called the already and the not yet. And this is a principle that Christian theologians have formulated to describe what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about the kingdom of God. And we see this all over the place. Here's a couple examples. 1 John 3 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know when he appears, we will be like him, 
because we will see him as he is. So John says we are currently God's children, but there's something more about who we are that we don't quite understand yet that hasn't quite happened. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Paul says that Jesus has risen from the dead. He conquers the power of darkness and death itself, and he saves us from the power of sin. And he is ascended, and he rules and reigns in heaven. But also, in addition to that, at some point in the future, all of his people will be raised to new life when his kingdom comes in full. One more from Paul in Romans 8. He says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says there's this tension. He's, he's out there. He's preaching the good news about Jesus, that the king has come and he has saved people and he is ruling and reigning, but also we're in this space of decay and death and groaning where even the whole of creation goes, come on, let's fix it. We're waiting. And this is something that's important to remember about the gospel. The story of the scripture is not just this individual tale about how Jesus saves you from your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is about Jesus Christ ruling and reigning and remaking the whole creation into what it was meant to be before. And we have the spirit of God inside of us right now, but we're also waiting for something to happen in the future. And we could go on and on and on looking at verses that have this tension where, where there's this, this kingdom that's taken place, this rule and reign of Jesus that's happening right now, but there's also this expectation of something happening in the future. So when will the kingdom come? Well, it's already come, and it will also come at some point in the future. The second question is, what, what will it look like? If the kingdom of God is a reality in which God's rule is in effect, where Jesus goes, he brings the kingdom with him. It's the place where all people are in submission to his rule. The will of God is expressed in the kingdom of God. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking for the kingdom to be expressed through the will of God. So, follow-up question, what's, what's the will of God? Here's a couple things. The effects of sin become undone when God's will is done. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. When Jesus goes places, he heals people because that's what the kingdom is like. Sickness and death lose their power in the kingdom of God. 
Matthew 12, 28 says, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is pushing back the powers of darkness because that's what God's will is. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. God desires obedience and trust. Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And in Matthew 18, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When we read the story in Luke, there were these these people that refused to submit to the king. They said, I don't want you to rule and reign over me. Citizens of the kingdom of God walk in obedience to the king, and they trust him with their lives. What else is connected to God's will? God desires to save people. John 6, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. God wants people to be saved. And these are all really good things. Healing, recovery, freedom, salvation. But what happens if God's will doesn't seem super good? Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he also says something very similar in Matthew 26. Jesus is going to be crucified, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before he gets betrayed by his friend, and he's praying. And we read again a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's the same words that he uses in the prayer he teaches us, your will be done. And in that moment for Jesus, the will of the father at least on some level, was in tension with what he was feeling was good. In some way that we don't entirely understand, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Jesus didn't want to suffer. Jesus was riddled with anxiety and fear, and the Bible says that he sweat drops of blood in his suffering in that moment. And he still says, your will be done. So the question for us, when we pray this prayer, your will be done, is can we trust God enough to submit to his will even when it seems like it doesn't go our way? Tim Keller has this to say about the prayer, unless we are profoundly certain that God is our Father, which we talked about last week, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. I think that's really important. We talked last week about just the fatherhood of God, that we come to God in this prayer with this relationship, if you're a Christian this morning, this relationship already in place. We don't have to earn his love. We don't have to create a relationship. We don't have to win his approval. He is our loving father. And that's the posture with which we come to him in prayer. And only in that posture, if we actually trust God, can we say, your will be done. My daughter, Nora, um, has, has a lot of anxiety. She, she really struggles with uh, the future. And it can be any future. We're going to Washington, D.C. this fall on a family vacation, and she's just racked with anxiety about it. And she knows it's going to be fun, but she just, it just drives her crazy. And, 
And so it's very difficult to tell her what's going to happen in the course of a week because we know if we do that, it's, it'll just stress her out. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, the dentist said that she had to get a couple teeth pulled. She's got some baby teeth that aren't getting out of the way, and they're, they're messing up her adult teeth, and so we just got to take them out. So I made the appointment, and I talked to Joanna about it, and we decided we're just not going to tell her. <laughs> Until that morning, and we said, hey, you and Daddy are going to go out this morning. And she's like, really good, yay, what are we going to do? And I kind of felt bad, you know? <laughs> and, and we got in the car, and, and we, we rode to the dentist. And she loves her dentist. He's great. Um, but on the way to the dentist's office, she goes, are we going to the dentist? <laughs> yeah, we are. And, and she, was, she was a trooper. It was, it, was, it was great. But the only reason she was able to get that far is because she trusts me because she knows that I'm not going to lead her into something that's not for her good. And because we have that relationship, I can just say, hey, we're going to go do something. And whether it's fun or not, she goes, okay, dad, I trust you. And it's the same thing with God, because <laughs> how many of us do not know what's happening in the future. Like all of us, right? Like very rarely does God go like, in six years, this thing's going to happen because we probably couldn't handle it. And so God leads us moment by moment through our days. And if we recognize that he is our good father, we can walk that way, knowing that whatever he brings us, whatever his will is for us is going to be good. A couple other things we can know about God's will. I don't have verse references here, but just a list. It's not God's will that children should perish. It's God's will that Jesus would lose none of those who are his. It's God's will that those that believe in Christ would have eternal life. It's God's will that Jesus would give himself for us to rescue us from this present evil age. It's God's will that we would be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. It's God's will that we would be wise. It's God's will that we wouldn't be drunk with wine, but instead we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's God's will that all of God's people would not be people pleasers, but would work with their heart focused on the Lord. It's God's will that we would keep away from sexual immorality. It's God's will that we would give thanks in everything. It's God's will that we would endure hard struggle with suffering. And it's God's will that we would silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Some of the statements that I just read are clearly things that God is doing on his own, right? Is the plan of salvation for God's people is God's will, and God is moving that forward in his own power and strength, and much of that has been accomplished in the cross, but there's a few things in, in that list that I just read that, that it's God's will for us to do, that we're meant to be a part of, that we're meant to make certain choices in, in the way we live our lives, the way we treat other people. And that brings us to the third question about this part of the prayer, which is, what is our role 
in this request, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this just something that God is doing? Are we just asking him to do a work? Or are we actually participating in this part of the prayer? And I think it's both. The part of the prayer is a passive request for the kingdom to come. God, bring your kingdom in full. Put an end to the suffering and death and sin and, and, and restore creation. Bring it all back in phase the way it's supposed to be. But it's also an active request for the kingdom of God to come alive in me. There's a uh, real sense in which we are being asked to partner with God, that His kingdom is something that's unstoppable, that is on its way, that will come, but the means by which it's going to come is through the power that He has given us as His people in the church. Dallas Willard says it like this, the the treasure that we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. We can and should draw upon it as needed, for it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom, even now interwoven in my life. N.T. Wright says it another way. He says, the main task of our vocation is in image-bearing, reflecting the Creator's wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its Maker. Those who do so are the royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests, the people who are called to stand at the dangerous but exhilarating point where heaven and earth meet. And so when we ask God in this prayer that his kingdom would come, when you pray that prayer, I want you to think about a day in the future that, that isn't here. When I, pray, when, I, when I pray that prayer, I often think about what's going on in Ukraine right now, that, that God's kingdom needs to come into that space and bring healing and wholeness and peace. I think about what ha- is happening in our nation right now, that there is division and dispute and factions and, and so much misunderstanding and talking past one another, and God's kingdom needs to come into this space and bring unity and peace. But also, when you pray that prayer, I want you to think about the ways that you are an ambassador for the kingdom in this place, in Coeur d'Alene and Post Falls and Rathdrum and Hayden and Athol. And that just like Jesus is a 
outpost in himself of the kingdom, where the king is, he is there. He's like this, um, if you've ever done the thing where you, you've got a, a little pool of water that's covered in grease, and you put a drop of dish soap in the middle of it, and the grease just kind of flees, right? That's what Jesus is doing when he steps into the scene, and he brings this pocket of the kingdom of God with him. Well, we've been given the Spirit of Christ, right? The Holy Spirit lives within us, and the mission that we are on is to multiply the kingdom of God all around this city. And so to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is both a plea for God to bring justice and life and goodness to bring the two worlds that are out of phase because of sin and death back together. And it's also a plea for him to equip us to be agents of that renewal and revival in the places that we live, in the places that we work, in the places that we go to school. Derwin Gray writes, in the Spirit's power you have the sacred task of embodying the kingdom on earth. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, this is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's where we're going to end this morning with the second stanza of the prayer. And we're going we're gonna to worship together. We're going to sing together, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And, and Jesus, in the, in the Lord's Supper, is doing a lot of things. One of the things that he's doing, he says that um, when he drinks the cup with his disciples, he says, I'm not going to drink this cup again until I do in the kingdom with you. And, and it's a reminder for us every time we take the bread and take the cup that the kingdom is coming in full one day. And all of the things that are broken will be made right. All of the things that are wrong will be made right. All of the sickness and death and pain will be fixed. And there's going to be a really big party on that day. And Jesus is going to join in the meal with us. And so I would invite you as we sing to come up and take the bread and take the cup back to your seat and just reflect on the things in this world, in this life, in your heart that are out of phase with reality out of phase with God's reality, the way that God says things are meant to be. And maybe ask him, is there a way that I am meant to be used by you to bring them back into alignment in the small part of the world that you've given me to steward? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.